Welcome to Improbable Walks, a podcast that brings you to the streets of Paris wherever you are. My name is Lisa Passold, and I'm a writer and traveler who loves to walk in the City of Light. Every episode, we step into history by strolling down a different block of the city, exploring buildings and people of the past and of the present. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your time and ears. And if you're just discovering the podcast, please check out my website, lisapassold.com. That's L-I-S-A-P-A-S-O-L-D.com for previous streets and more information about the podcast. You can also support this podcast, Improbable Walks, by donating a coffee to the series. You can visit my Patreon page, patreon.com slash Lisa Passold. Now let's step into history together. Today we're exploring what has developed into an open-air antiques mall, practically in the shadow of the Eiffel Tower. We're starting at the metro stop École Militaire, at the foot of the Champ de Mars. The military school, which gives its name to the metro stop, has buildings dating back to the middle of the 1700s. But the warlike history of this area goes back millennia. In January of the year 52 BC, the Gauls made a last stand here against the Romans. The local Parisi tribe rose up with other Gaulish tribes to fight the invading Latins. They were fighting against Caesar, who was elsewhere in Europe with the ongoing Gallic Wars. The battle here in this now elegant location is known as the Battle of Lutetia. The Parisi were led by the experienced Gaulish chief Camulogène, who fought and initially defeated the Romans. He died on the field as Roman reinforcements arrived. There's a fantastic sculpture of Camille Eugène with a very proto-hipster Parisian mustache, which you can check out on my website. After the brutal defeat of 52 BC here on what's now the Champ de Mars, the Parisi cooperated with their colonizers. Caesar stated his admiration for the tribe. In fact, he called the Parisi allies rather than a conquered tribe, which was probably not much of a consolation prize for the locals. The only real revenge the Parisi have had is the name of the city. The Romans called this place Lutetia, city of the Parisi. But once the city ceased to be governed by Rome, everyone came to know the city simply as Paris. Fast forward to the year 1751, when King Louis XV founded the military college, the École Militaire, with the encouragement of his intelligent paramour, Madame de Pompadour. The king put his architect, Ange-Jacques Gabriel, onto the project. I love Ange-Jacques' first name, Ange-Jacques Gabriel. He came from a long family line of architects. Gabriel's instructions from the king was to create something grander than the Invalides. 
the Invalides had been built under Louis XIV, and Louis XV felt competitive. So the architecture Gabriel set to work. The project took decades, but we can now admire the Baroque-influenced neoclassical military school with its cavalry wings and practice fields. The formal Champ de Mars named the Fields of Mars, logically because Mars is the Roman god of war, hence the Champ de Mars, were the parade grounds for the school. During the French Revolution, the Champ de Mars became a popular place to hold grand celebrations during the Revolution, including the Fête de l'Etre Suprême in June 1794, the Festival of the Supreme Being, which, the calendar having been changed for the revolutionary system, was not in fact in 1794, but in the prairial month of the year two. That particular festival was led by Robespierre and featured an enormous altar to La Patrie, the homeland. When huge celebrations weren't being staged here, the Champ de Mars were parade ground, with military types riding up and down. Ladies strolled with intent, carelessly dropping handkerchiefs, hoping that handsome officers might come to their aid. And when the great Paris exhibitions began, the first Exhibition Universelle was held in 1855 in Paris, well, the Champ de Mars were a logical place to build some of the temporary pavilions. And so extraordinary international pleasure palaces went up, incorporating design styles from all over the world, much like Disney World today. One enduring Champ de Mars legacy arrived with the exhibition of 1889. The Eiffel Tower was built. Yes, it too was supposed to be temporary, but Parisians never got around to taking it down. Speaking of temporary, right now, as we stand in the Champ de Mars just across the street from the sober but beautiful entrance of the École Militaire, there's a large temporary exhibition space known as the Grand Palais Ephemère. This is an ephemeral gallery space being used for book fairs, art shows, and other scheduled Grand Palais events. The actual Grand Palais, the magnificent glass and iron crystal palace of an exhibition space on the other side of the Seine, is currently being renovated for the 2024 Olympics. The renovation is being financed by the fashion house of Chanel. The Grand Palais was one of the great Karl Lagerfeld's chosen Parisian runways for his big fashion shows. Today, the ephemeral nature of this exhibition space in front of the École Militaire strikes me as being perfectly appropriate, given the number of temporary structures that were built for the universal exhibitions of the 19th and early 20th century. And that's mostly why we're here today. The Universal Exhibition in Paris, not the 1889 one with the Eiffel Tower, but the one that happened in 1900, left us some interesting aspects to visit. If we walk through the first block of the Champ de Mars, admiring the views from behind the Grand Palais Ephemère, we can imagine what was built here for the exhibition of 1900. The Eiffel Tower would, of course, loom to our right, but right here, near what's now a children's playground, there was a huge Ferris wheel 
the big wheel, that took people up to see amazing views of the city, and it was no doubt a popular romantic spot, looking across these marvelous pavilions that lined the Champ de Mars gardens, representing 47 different countries. In 1900, the temporary buildings here included an entire artificial Swiss village built by two artists, Charles Hennenberg and Louis-Jules Allemand, who was a Swiss landscape gardener. There was, unsurprisingly, an alpine-style landscaping done complete with artificial cliffs, authentically imported Swiss chalets, Swiss lace makers and craftsmen, and of course, Swiss cheese. Millions of people visited. During the fair, the Paris metro opened, electricity was celebrated in an enormous electrical fairy palace, and moving sidewalks allowed people to get around the huge area. After the fair of 1900, the village was dismantled and the international crowds left town, including the several hundred Swiss craftsmen, dairymaids, and actors who all went home. Ordinary Paris street life resumed, and the Champ de Mars became a more ordinary park and playground. But the festive ambiance stayed around the Eiffel Tower, and here where we're still standing, the large Ferris wheel stayed up. But remember, the year 1900 is the beginning of the 20th century, and before too many turns of that big wheel, Parisians found themselves in the middle of the horrors of the Great War. By the end of World War I, the giant Ferris wheel here in the Champ de Mars had been dismantled. The little metal wagon cars that once brought people around in a circle to admire the view were essentially abandoned here. In the often impoverished aftermath of the Great War, the little metal wagon cars were recycled as market stands by local chiffonniers, the rag and junk sellers. Gradually, these became vendors specializing in used furniture and second-hand clothing, just here to the west of the Champ de Mars. So to see what this Swiss village area has become today, let's walk out of the gardens of the Champ de Mars, stroll along the little Rue Jean Carriès, lined with classy apartment buildings, and take a left onto the Avenue de Suffren. You'll notice from here the late 1960s and early 1970s apartment complex, surrounded by what's mostly a houseman-style boulevard. The effect is relatively sedate. This isn't brutalist architecture, but quite tasteful. This development is here because in 1967, the entire area was torn down and rebuilt. So any last surviving wagon cars from the big Ferris wheel have long gone. But if you step through the open hallway at number 78 Avenue de Suffren, you'll find a memory of the Swiss village from that universal exhibition of 1900. Because this whole modern block of buildings is still called Le Village Suisse. Having evolved from the old rag sellers and used furniture men, there's still an antiques market here. But now the antique furniture, fine art, and objets d'art are exquisitely curated in tiny boutiques lining the alleys of an elegant outdoor mall. 
The alley street signs echo the Swiss village theme, with each alley named for a town in Switzerland, Lucerne, Zurich, etc. And with the fact that the Swiss brands are associated with luxury, these antique shops really work with that theme. If the weather's bad, you can also go down into the basement level for an entire lower, lower level of boutiques. But when the weather's good, it's wonderful to stay up at ground level and enjoy the phenomenal window shopping here. Or, as the French say, leche vitrine, window licking. As a friend said recently visiting the Village Suisse, it's better than a museum because you might actually buy something. You could take home a piece of history. To finish this walk, we can stroll down the Rue Suffran and have a glass of wine on the Terrasse of Le Piquet, just west of the intersection of Suffran and the Avenue de la Matte-Piquet. From here, we can admire Gabriel's sober façade of the École Militaire, and maybe give a small thought to Napoleon Bonaparte, who in 1779 began studying at the military college in Brienne, a cold and unfriendly place for a young Corsican used to Mediterranean sunshine. Brienne is not that far from Paris. If you head off towards Switzerland, you hit a town called Troyes, and Brienne is near there. So it's quite a rainy part of France, and it was probably really hard on Napoleon. He was ridiculed for his accent and for his lack of money. He felt humiliated and miserable, but he read everything he could get his hands on. In 1784, he finished up his military education with a year in Paris, here at the École Militaire. He arrived as a 15-year-old cadet with few friends. He developed a cold, self-confident personality to protect himself from constant bullying. And from here, in Paris, he launched his astonishing military career. If you enjoyed this improbable walk, please subscribe to the podcast. If you'd like to support me in my walks through Paris and encourage me to bring you more history via these free podcasts, please check out patreon.com slash Lisa Passold, where you too could become an improbable walks Patreon. A thousand thanks and a tip of my Napoleon-style bicorn hat to people who have sponsored me recently. Believe me, I am truly grateful. For photos and details about today's walk, please visit my website, lisapassel.com. Thank you so much for listening and for stepping into history with me. Until next time, we go strolling into Paris together.